like having worked as an ecologist and being able to see changes in the landscape. And like today, riding into work, there's there's red dust everywhere because it's come up through the dust storms and kind of mm. just knowing that's our topsoil mm. going mm. and y- you can see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you mm-hmm. see it like maybe 10 years ago or 12 years ago when we started in this It was more space, theoretical. It was more theoretical and you can see it, you know, it's been almost daily now. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Welcome, folks, to this episode of the Climactic Collective. It's Bron Gresham here, your host for this episode. And today we're bringing you the mover and shaker behind Australia's communities moving to beyond zero emissions, Imogen Jub. Today you'll hear about how you could potentially initiate a community initiative with the support of Beyond Zero Emissions and their incredible resources. And also hear a little bit about how Imogen sustains her passion and her work. She's been in the game for a long time. We would like to together acknowledge that we're meeting in a studio today on Wurundjeri land and to acknowledge the traditional owners of this beautiful land, the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, and to pay our deepest respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We recognise the sovereignty of this land was never ceded and together we recognise in this process of reconciliation, relearning and reconnecting with wisdom to protect culture, to protect values and the relationship that we have with this land and that together we are healthier, stronger and wiser. So allow me now to introduce our wonderful guest, Imogen Jubb. We actually met back in 2014 I think uh, she was working at the ACF, the Australian Conservation Foundation, and we both attended the Al Gore Climate Reality Training. And at the time, Imogen was working as the communications advisor, and we had a, a shared interest in embedding some well-being slides into the packs for the climate reality training. And I'm not even sure how that how that went or what ended up. Yeah, go oh, definitely in there. Great. And go um, us. And I think we started using the psychology for a safe climate. Resources. Oh, fantastic. I've used them ever since. Amazing. Amazing. Always good to get an update six years later. (laughs) And fast forward now to 2020, Imogen is the National Manager of Zero Carbon Communities, a Beyond Zero Emissions initiative that helps local communities reduce local emissions. She's authored the Zero Carbon Communications Guide and was the Principal Director of the Australian Local Government Climate Review 2018. And that was really a comprehensive assessment of what councils and communities are doing to tackle climate change, uh, a really informative read, and we'll put some links in the show notes. She's also an elected board member of the Australian Energy Foundation and previously worked with the Bureau of Meteorology and CSIRO, where she co-authored reports with some of Australia's leading climate change scientists. 
She's on the Reference Committee for Women's Environmental Leadership Australia. And I think that's actually what prompted me to get back in touch with you. I saw a, a post on LinkedIn about that awesome. leadership. Highly recommend it for yeah. any women out there in environmental leadership positions yeah. or wanting to be. Is it an annual program? It's currently an annual program. Fantastic. Well, welcome. You're already in. <laughs> Thanks, Bronwyn. It's lovely to see you. Oh, look, where to begin? I, I'm just so impressed by your work history and I'm sure the listeners will be too and really keen to hear some of your insights and learnings over the years with everything that you've been engaged in. But I wonder if we could just begin way further back a little bit with how did you come to really care about climate change? What got you into this? The first thing I remember is a poster in my high school science classroom about greenhouse gases oh. or the greenhouse effect probably it would have been at the time. And I remember going home and being quite vigilant about turning off lights and turning down the heater and really annoying my mum as a result. Um, And it was probably (laughs) my first lesson in the complexities of behaviour change. (laughs) (laughs) And just because, um, you know, someone thinks something's a good idea, that Mm. doesn't mean everyone else wants to follow Mm. follow the pack. Um, Was it a poster that frightened you or a poster that... Do you remember? I don't don't really remember, to be honest, but I do Mm. remember... I do remember it being there and going, oh, that's that's rubbish. We've got to do something about that. And then yeah. the message about it was personal change around turning your light bulbs off and things yeah. like that, which, as we've come to learn, is not necessarily really the way we need to direct people. Yeah. Um, but I would have been a I – was, I was into the environment as a little kid. Like I always paid attention to plants and animals and I used to go around and pick up rubbish with my friends in high school yeah. in the local parks and plant trees and – it's always something I've cared about. Ah, have you got a sense of where that that love has come from or that that attention to nature? Is it a family trait? Well, we spent a lot of time outdoors when I was a kid. We'd go on little bushwalks. I grew up in Canberra, so we'd go on little bushwalks. And Bush capital? I remember my parents telling me that I used to spot snakes from the little backpack that they'd carry, carry me around in when I was a baby and, um, you know... It was always really exciting to find echidnas or tadpoles or, you know, and I love watching birds. So, you know, I think it's partly innate and partly, you know, the the place I grew up in. And another place that's really special to me is on the south coast in Rosedale and that's just been hit Mm. by the fires. So Mm. I'm pretty sad about that. That's tragic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and then when I was at uni I studied ecology and Mm. did some really great field trips. Mm. As part of that course, and went to the Simpson Desert mm. um, and did lots of wildlife surveys and vegetation mm. surveys, and really loved that. And was yeah. just astounded by the diversity of creatures we have yeah. in our country. Yeah. Um, and then I had worked um, with a small family environmental consulting mm. um, business and did lots of wildlife surveys for threatened species, particularly around the Hunter region. Right. Um, and probably from there I was like, these these are so rigorous and they take such a lot of um, effort and I feel like they're getting made into reports that someone in a council ticks or crosses right. at the end of the day. I was like, you need better understanding of the habitat and better understanding yeah. of the environment before people will really yeah. change what they're doing. Yeah. And even things like there are f- little creatures like gales and feather-tail gliders and most people mm. don't even know that they exist so yeah. it's hard to care about protecting them. When what you what are the gales? Fasca gales. gales. A bit like tiny little sugar gliders. Oh, gorgeous! Um, yeah, they're really gorgeous. Yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, probably my interest in climate change really started from protecting creatures yeah. point of view because I really cared about threatened species. And so what background did you need through high school or through – did you have to study to get into that line of work initially? Uh, so, well, that was through uni. I studied I studied science arts at uni pretty much because mm-hmm. I couldn't make up my mind about which one I was more interested That's in. a lovely blend. And <laughs> I only ended up finishing the science degree. And then I did um, – yeah, I, 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 my first job out of uni was working in that kind of – being out in the bush, out mm. surveying for animals, looking around for kangaroo, koala poo and climbing <laughs> up trees and finding bats. And yeah, it was pretty spectacular. It's yeah. pretty, pretty special thing to be able to do. Absolutely. And really, I guess, tapping into something that you found quite natural, mm. being outdoors and um, feeling alive and enlivened in nature yeah. and following that. Mm. And after that, I went and studied science communication. Um, I did a, a pretty awesome course at ANU mm-hmm. um, called the Science Circus uh-huh. and travelled all around the country visiting schools and communities and doing wow. science workshops and it was fabulous. That sounds like fun. It was really science fun. Science Circus, that's them making science fun, isn't it? I actually just went back to Questacon this weekend um, for the first time in years with my kids and it was yep. really super. <laughs> did you learn anything? Yes, they had this really cool... Um, oil with nanoparticles of iron filings in it that connected to a magnet. And so you could spin the magnet and turn it on and off and it made this really cool Christmas tree thing. I'd never seen it before. It was really great. Wow. Okay. Check it out, everyone. And and so was it always quite clear for you, that pathway, or were there times when you were doubting yourself or feeling frustrated uh, with the work you, you were mentioning around the surveying and the, the tick box kind of reports that that was potentially a turning point um, but you know was was it all was it that easy uh, and it, it might I, be. I think every job I've had has been amazing in some mm-hmm. ways and every job's had its challenges um, I think I've been really fortunate and just kind of followed what happens to be the next thing mm. that like I've never really set out a career path or anything mm. um so I've just followed what happens to be the most interesting thing that comes along next. And mm. so after that, I ended up working with Questacon again in Indigenous communities, so mm. focused on working on science and kind of merging traditional knowledge and science education, mm. which again was such a privilege. Absolutely. Um, so I got to go to lots of different communities around Australia. Yeah. Um, and... Probably that was one of the first times, uh, at the same time I was learning much more about the climate science and that really it was the seriousness of it, that it, you know, mm. it wasn't just some sort of background problem, it was something we really needed to figure mm. out how to solve. Mm. Um, and I, I guess being in remote communities and seeing how difficult it would be to mm. manage that transition in remote communities when they already had so many difficult things to manage... Yep. That kind of really was the first learning about the kind of really unjust mm. applications of climate change and trying to figure out what you could do about that was pretty tricky. It's something that I was feeling too with certain parts of the community, particularly up in um, when Lamington National Park was on fire and the loss of Binnaburra Lodge and that was for me quite a, a challenging loss and... Um, yeah, I think the more we can find ways to share those stories of how you do feel grief even though you're, you know, not connected directly um, and just how we legitimise that, that grief. And Yeah, I was really taken actually. Like, you know, the 
the sadness and grief I feel for that place is really strong mm. and yet we've had a connection there for, you know, it's been my lifetime but only a little bit into my parents, so it's not really that long and it's just, a, you know, it's just a drop in the water of the sense of trauma and grief that Indigenous communities have had to deal with over the past 200 plus years mm. um, and I think it's really good to just acknowledge, you know, acknowledge the difference in scale. Absolutely. And and to acknowledge those feelings for for you that you're experiencing that I, I know people listening to this who um, have been reaching out through various channels are also feeling um, a lot of the grief and sadness and the acknowledgement that sense of place is so essential for our well-being. Yeah, there's a good um, fundraiser at the moment out, um, for an organisation called Fire Sticks, which is about... Um, Indigenous knowledge around fire management practices. Oh, so if you're interested in supporting that, it's a good one. Yeah, maybe we can put the links in the show notes as well. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about um, the emotional journey and self-care later, but I, I know our listeners would be buzzing to hear what you're doing with BZE. And um, in my brief, very brief research for the articles that you referred to for, you know, that you've contributed and authored, there's just so much cool stuff happening and um, we need people to know about this. Yep. There's heaps, there's heaps of solutions out there. They're achievable, they're affordable, and we can implement them now. Mm. So that's the good news. Yes, it is really good news. Well, tell us a little bit about um, what you are focusing on as the manager of the Beyond Zero Emissions Communities. What What is it? What's the program? So Zero Carbon Communities is helping any community anywhere in Australia um, who wants to reduce emissions locally. Mm-hmm. So it can be emissions in energy, land use, transport, waste um, and industry. We look at all of them and we're happy to support whatever is of most interest to you or your community. Um, And so I could just be, say, hey, in my neighbourhood, I'd like to see, like do something. Yep. And I could approach. Yep. So we've got a place to just register your interest and that will get you into our all-on newsletters and um, we'll probably give you a call if we can yep. um, and see what you're interested in. Um, ideally, we'll, we want to support groups. So um, so if there's a sustainability group in your area or you know a group who's interested in talking to the council or a network of neighbourhoods or sustainability streets or whatever, you know, whatever yeah. pre-existing groups or new groups are out there, um, we can provide you with resources, so shared, I mean, particularly sharing resources between communities so that people don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, we've got our guide, which we're looking at updating. We provide data so that you can know what your starting emissions are and what yeah. sectors they come from. This was one of the things that, I don't know why it got me so excited, but it did when I read it, and I've just lost the name of it. What's it's it? called Snapshot. Snapshot, that's yeah. it. Tell us more about that. So Snapshot is a tool that will literally give you a snapshot of all the emissions in your local council, the community emissions, so you know, not just from your council operations, but from the whole community. Um, oh. And that can be a baseline at which you can then try and figure out how to best reduce them. So different communities have different proportions of emissions. So some are really high in land use and some are really high in energy, often depending if you're a rural or a metropolitan council. Um, And so it helps with strategy about what's the most effective things for your Mm. particular community to do. And it also provides a benchmark to see if anything's changing. Yeah. Um, so they're currently publicly available for all New South Wales and all Victorian councils mm-hmm. and they're on our website so you can find them through there. And if um, we're, we're looking to release all other states this year and if you want yours fast-tracked, just send us an email and we'll try and put it at the top of the list. Put me at the top of the list. That's so <laughs> amazing. 
Now it's time for Climactic Community Corner, where we play voice messages sent to us on Facebook. We're opening up this space for the community to share events, news, thoughts, feelings, all sorts. If you've got a message to share, just send it to us at Climactic Show on Facebook or hello at climactic.fm. Hi, this is Vasha. I'm one of the organizers for School Strike for Climate, and I just wanted to let you all know in the Climactic community that this week, from the 2nd to 6th of February, we're having a week of action outside of Parliament House in Canberra. Um, School Strike for Climate is co-hosting this event with People's Climate Assembly, and what we're doing is we're trying to make sure that our government is going to declare a climate emergency and an ecological emergency. Um, There's a lot more information and a full schedule on their website at peoplesclimateassembly.org. And then there's also a lot on Facebook that's going around as well. So it'd be great if we could see you there and if you check out the information. Thank you. Hi, this is Holly Hammond, Director of the Commons Social Change Library, with a resource recommendation for climate activists. Facing the reality of the climate crisis can be profoundly psychologically and emotionally challenging. Taking action collectively can be balm for our sore souls, but it's also important to access support and information on this topic. The Commons Library has a treasure trove of wellbeing resources, including some excellent videos from regular climactic contributor and host, Bronwyn Gresham. They include emotional health and our response to a changing climate, and overcoming the top three challenges to self-care. Browse the wellbeing topic on commonslibrary.org or type Bronwyn into the search bar. The Commons is your one-stop shop for resources for community action. Can you tell us, or do you have like a, a success story in mind of a community that, just to run us through like what it might actually look and feel like for, say, a group that got involved... So, for example, I was working with Nillambic um, community a few years ago and they set up a clean energy Can Nillambic Can I just ask where Nillambic is? Nillambic is just north-east of – well, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's part of Melbourne but in the northeast part of Melbourne, okay. um, kind of on the fringe. Um, and so, yeah, they formed a group called Clean Energy Nillambic and they've been working to um, with the council and they're looking at setting up a big solar farm on one of their land use sites. So wow. that's a really exciting um, project on the way. And do you notice a difference or a shift in the um, the citizens, the community members participating in terms of how they like? Do they do you notice like kind of co benefits of them feeling empowered or feeling like yes, yeah, yes? I think you know everyone everyone's got something to bring to this situation, and different people have different skills and. Yeah, some people are really into energy and some people are really into waste and some people are really into planting trees and caring for your local creek and all of those things are really important. And if people can find the thing that is their little um, nugget of passion, yep. it's really amazing to see them fly. Yep. So part of the zero carbon communities is just providing that background support so people can do what is of interest to them in their local region and find the projects ideally that will reduce emissions the most, the quickest um, in the most, in the way that will benefit the community the most, and that would be so much more um, validating, wouldn't it? Because so often, you, well, I hear people saying that they're contributing this way or that way, but one of their doubts or fears is that it's not going to make a difference, or it's not, or, or questioning, is this the most effective thing I could be doing? And so to have that like evidence formed in pro- approach and um, the message that 
whatever you're doing, this is making a difference and other people are doing, you know, this piece of the puzzle, I can imagine, you know, then you're connected to all the pieces of the puzzle and you begin to see that this is the community of we and it's not just about the individual, which is what I feel like you were referring to in the beginning when you said, you know, we've kind of moved in our communications from um, a heightened hyper-focus on individualised change um, which is important, but it was often at the expense of maybe collective change. And now we're trying to kind of, I guess, shift the dial a bit to the more collective without losing the individualised. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, a systemic change is required to really solve this problem and it's very hard for individuals to do that on their own. Mm. Um, so looking at the systems and how can you nudge the systems so that, you know, you, you save a lot of emissions at the end of the day. So mm. buildings is a really good example of that. If you could improve the building code legislation, you can build homes that require barely any energy to run mm. and it saves a whole lot of expense for your householders and it saves a whole lot of, you know, improves the comfort and the quality of your life because you're not cold, you're not hot, mm. you've got a beautiful place to, to spend your time mm. and it saves the hassle of trying to retrofit everything Absolutely. later on, which is much, much more complicated. So that's, that's an example of a system change um, which... It's difficult, are we, are but it can on, be done. Oh, I, that's what I was going to ask. Are we on our way to that kind of um, – because that requires legislative yeah. change. Yeah. So that one requires legislative change and um, and it's it's progressing. Mm. It's not there yet. I'm not an expert in that one, um, but Renew, Renew is. So okay. touch base with them if you want to find out more about that. Great. That's good to hear. And do you ever have those moments where – as you were talking, it reminded me of a story my sister was telling me recently. She's been working a bit further on the outskirts of Sydney and just really um, witnessing the sprawl of buildings and um, the impact that that's had on her emotionally, feeling um, just, uh, I guess, some some of the rage and despair of, oh my gosh, this is such a huge scale and what are we doing and how do we, you know, the urgency of we need change coming up quicker. I'm wondering if for you, you ever have those moments of, because you're in this and you've been in this game for so long and you've probably seen and known that there's solutions ready to go, but there's the kind of frustration of the blockages or barriers and just how, you know, how you navigate that or how you stay sane in that situation yeah, well, I think working on the solutions really helps um, because it means you feel like you have some efficacy. Um, yeah. So I used to work as the climate change science communicator at CSIRO and the Bureau, and the more I learned about the psychology of communicating this information, that if you if you tell the problem without the solution, it can often leave people feeling stressed Absolutely. and therefore they... They, they dissociate from it. Mm-hmm. So I felt like at some point that was not as effective as I would like and that maybe I was contributing to the problem in mm. in a roundabout kind of a way. Mm. It is really important. People do understand the scale of the problem and mm. they do understand the science, mm. but they need to feel some agency at the same time. Absolutely. And um, I, I feel like that's where a lot of our media is quite rightly and justly focusing on the scale and extent of the urgency of the problem, the climate crisis or climate emergency, those words being used. Um, and it's not, we haven't quite yet got to the, the although there are speckles throughout the media, but it's not quite in balance yet. And probably we need quite a stronger side of 
the solutions are here and they're possible and this is how we get there, this is the mapping, these yeah. are the steps we take versus, you know, I, I feel like... So one, could- of the, one of the things I really want to do this year is yeah. help provide resources for communities so the steps they can take are um, more concrete and more clear and they can take them to community workshops and forums yeah. and, and find out what, what their community in particular wants to achieve, yeah. what are the projects of most interest. And then I'm working... Um, with investors because a block is getting money to community. They can have the best plan in the world, but if you can't fund it, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to work with investors who want to see this change happen as well mm. um, and break down some of the barriers of actually getting money to communities mm. so that they can implement them. Mm. Um, and that's really interesting because often it's a problem of scale. Investors, for example, want to look at projects that are $100 million plus because it suits their needs better yeah and communities can really think at that scale and um so how do we bridge that gap or how do we amalgamate projects across lots of communities so that they get to the right level of funding absolutely yeah so that's something we're working on as well um but yeah if your community has a project that you think could get up and running Mm. we've got some pre-feasibility checklists and if we can tick all those off we can pass it on to investors to take a look at Oh, fantastic. So what, what does the checklist kind of look or sound like? The Oh, gosh, that's putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> so these are fair energy projects. Uh-huh. Um, so you need to look at the environmental considerations. You need to look at the grid connection considerations. You need to know that there's community support okay. for it. Um, it has to stack up financially. Um, and there's one other category that I can't remember off the top oh, of my no, head. That, but again, if you're interested, get in touch and we can pass it on. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so things like the solar farm in Nilambic, for example, has gone like they're they're at that they're developing the the next step for that. Great. So they've gone through that pre feasibility. Yeah. So it's good to look at I guess those as case studies and yep. and um, be inspired by them for yep. what what is actually possible because it's hard to kind of envision unless you see it there that oh, okay this community they have done that and so can we. Um, and especially supported, and that's what I loved when I was reading about the the work that you're doing in the website. It's just it's just oozing support, and like, hey, we've got you. Here's all this information, and we can help you apply it. And it's wow. And another really great thing we're trying to do is match volunteers. So BZE is um, fundamentally a volunteer organisation. So we have hundreds of volunteers who help with our research, who help with our day to day running, who. Um, help with community wow. work um, and we're trying to match volunteers with communities so if you've got a particular need that we can match you with a volunteer with that's another way we can support you. Oh fantastic I did not know that it was a predominantly volunteer run community organisation. Wow mm. it's so impressive what's what's been accomplished. It is yeah so you know our research is done by world-class researchers mm. on a pro bono basis most wow. of the time. Mm. Um, and again, it's really clear the solutions are here, they're affordable and they're achievable to implement now. Mm. And so maybe if we could steer into a a bit more of a a you direction, because I am really interested to hear more about, like you've been doing this work for so long and really attuned to, um, you know, the, the unravelling of what's happening with climate change and focused on the solutions that just, um, Really interested to hear. I, I know you're a mum. I think I can say that publicly. Is that okay? <laughs> and just, you know, how you as a mum and as a citizen yourself, um, what are the different things that are keeping you up at night and what 
what do you do to kind of support yourself and your family? This is like Imogen's top five tips. No, <laughs> no pressure. Um, I think I, I think there's a whole mix of emotions in this game from like being quite terrified to feeling really positive and, um, you know, loving the work that I do. Mm. Um, there's also grief. There's also denial. Um, we were driving to Canberra the other day to visit family and the, the snowies were on fire and you could see these like five or six massive pyrocumulus clouds in a row and having had that background of caring for critters and just knowing what's, yeah. you know, that that's hard to face and to be honest I was more interested in scrolling on my phone at the time. Well, um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's kind of like our, our empathy, what I often, um, you know, in my kind of brain trying to understand these things is you know our empathy gets activated we can really attune to the suffering and this the funny thing or the paradox I guess is that we need that to then feel motivated to take action and then when you enjoy that action that's intrinsically motivating so it's so good to hear you say that you love your job because it means we're going to keep you in it we need you um but also the that knowing that our empathy can sometimes be an overdrive and if we kind of torture ourselves in that way or stay in that space too long, it can then kind of backfire. Yeah. I actually think I had a bit of climate anxiety a few years ago and I was like, this, is, this isn't going to be helpful. Mm. Uh, I don't really want to spend my time in that space. Do you remember um, what you were picking up on at the time, what climate anxiety meant to you or what, what was the experience? just being – like having worked as an ecologist and being able to see changes in the landscape. And like today riding into work, there's – there's red dust everywhere because it's come up through the dust storms and kind of just knowing that's our topsoil mm. going mm. and y- you can see it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a few mm-hmm. years ago, like maybe 10 years ago or 12 years ago when we started in this it was space, more theoretical it was more theoretical and you can see it you know it's been almost daily now mm. there's days we haven't been able to go outside because the smoke's been horrible or mm. you know so it's it, it is quite confronting but I also think a real tragedy would be to not notice how great we've got it at the moment mm. and to not spend your time appreciating and enjoying mm. the things that are there right in front of you mm. now. So I try and spend, like, consciously notice that sort of thing. I like awesome. noticing birds. I like noticing bats flying overhead. I like going out in the garden, pottering around, finding praying mantises or, you know, just and just paying attention to the beauty that's out there right now. Yeah. That's such a supportive inner resource and something that's um, got a real evidence base, whether you would realise that or not. But just um, that's what helps us hold the, the struggle or the suffering is when we can also kind of control or um, shift our attention in order to support and buffer us and shift our attention to the things that are, you know, that we appreciate or we find that are inspiring or delightful or intriguing or that create awe. Because I can imagine, like, when you talk about that, Listeners can't see this, but you kind of light up a little bit and it's just your whole body language changes and then that has a feedback back loop into how you're feeling as well. So that I feel like is what can help support us to face the challenge. Yeah, and I think also working on solutions, it's just great to see things rolling out. So, for example, at the Australian Energy Foundation, they're working on an Indigenous rolling solar fund so that, uh, again, Indigenous communities often suffer pretty hardcore energy poverty um, and if we can get solar panels onto their houses then they can reduce energy bills really significantly and improve comfort mm. um, and then that can spread through a community mm. so as one gets paid off they can put it on the neighbor's house and so on and so on and 
you know. That's so cool. Yeah, it's so cool. And in a, in in essence, the solutions, you know, you you could almost retrofit one house in a street, and then the savings from that could be used to pay to retrofit the say the the, the house next door. But that's too slow. We need to do it at scale. So how do we put lots and lots of funding into this stuff? Because yep. we already know how to do it. Yep. Um, so, yeah, seeing seeing these things happen is really exciting and seeing microgrid projects happen is really exciting. And um, So is there somewhere, you know, if you need a bit of dose of actually there is stuff happening out there and it's going to make a difference, <laughs> is there a good um, news outlet or website that you kind of would go to or kind of like a – if I don't have much time, poor time, mum, you know, yeah. Um, and I just need a, a quick dose of people are doing incredible things that are going to make a huge difference. Is there any, is there like a one-stop shop? I don't know, actually. BZE is always usually telling good news stories, um, but not across the whole spectrum. Mm. So maybe maybe someone out there could put There's that an together. idea. That might be great. <laughs> <laughs> or if someone knows, let us know. <laughs> There certainly are people who tell good stories, but I don't know if there's a one-stop shop for it. Mm. Um, yeah, another – so I mentioned at the beginning the Weller program, the Women in Environment Leadership Program. So yes. that's another – I guess it touches on, you know, climate change is really complex in its um, – you know, in the justice and the, the impacts it has on, on different people. So it's really also exciting to see how to – tackle the gender inequalities at the same time absolutely can do you can you give us a snapshot of that program what's involved or how could people find out about it Um, if they're interested so there is a weller website you can take a look at and applications are currently open for the 2020 program okay when do they close we'll have to get this episode out uh, before that i don't know when they close oh we'll find out we'll take that off (laughs) here hopefully not after this Um, sorry about that folks if that's the case um, so yeah that yeah there's, I just reckon any anybody out there listening, there's really positive ways to contribute and yeah. finding just a handful of people around you who care about it yeah. at the same time and finding something that you can do together is much more powerful than doing something on your own. So Absolutely. talk to your friends and family about it. Um, talk to your cafes, talk to your libraries, talk to your schools. Yeah. Um, everyone wants to see this change happen. They just don't always know how to go about it and yeah. everyone can do something about it. Yeah, well, and it's coming from you, that message is so powerful because you've experienced that yourself firsthand in your work but also in your life. So it's it's very, it's really credible. Thank you for sharing that. Um, now, we are going to be finishing up soon but really keen to hear if, uh, like what's kind of motivating you at the moment or is there someone out there who's inspiring you or something that you're working on that really gets you excited and... What, what might that be? Particularly, I guess, given the context of, uh, you know, the palpable challenge that we've got with the bushfires and, like you said, cycling in this morning and seeing all the dust from the storm last night. Um, you know, what what then do you turn your mind to to kind of energise? I mean, the community's response to the bushfires has been extraordinary and it's um, it's another indication, I think, that, the importance of communities playing a really big role in the solutions um, because when crisis stri- strikes, communities are what hold you all together. Um, so I actually think a completely separate reason for working on zero carbon community stuff or any kind of community building project is that you build the social resources mm. 
that you need to deal with in stressful times. Mm-hmm. I think we're probably heading for more stressful times. So I think um, working to build on those social capital resources is really, really important too. And Absolutely. there's lots and lots of different ways to do that. Yeah. Fantastic. And if people wanted to find out more about how they could get involved in that kind of community building, um, building that social capital or, you know, getting people together, um, is there, are there other resources that they could tap into? Uh, would it be going through BZE or...? Well, so BZE has it with the lens of how do you reduce emissions locally? Mm-hmm. Um, but a spin-off of that is building building tighter connections to community, tighter connections to your council. Yeah. Um, but there are probably other organisations who do just the, mm. you know, so organisations maybe like Red Cross or mm. your sporting associations mm. or your country women's association, all of those are working at building social yep. capital. So they're all great things to tap into too. Good. Thank you so much for that. And I just wanted to acknowledge um, your time here today and thank you so much for sharing, particularly for sharing that you did go through a period of time where you did feel more acute climate anxiety. I know it's so important that we depathologize these emotions and recognize that just because it's a negative emotion doesn't mean it's, um, you know, a, a mental health condition per se. Of course, it can flick into that and we need to um, get support and help when needed. But just to acknowledge, like, the more we speak to our emotions of grief and anxiety, um, the more we build awareness, the more we'll be able to kind of tend to our own needs and to others. So I really appreciate you sharing that and also sharing some of the things that you do to support yourself internally, like focusing your attention on things that actually bring you joy or inspire you. Um, and I'm sure there's many, many more things that you do um, to support yourself. So um, yeah, thank you for being so open and honest with us. It's and f- a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. And thanks for all your work with VZE. It's so amazing. I'll put those uh, links in the show notes and any other resources that you think would benefit listeners um, who might want to know more. And um, is there anything that you would like us to finish on or end on or uh, anything left unsaid? I reckon go and find one other person that you can talk to about this and Um, make a little plan about what you would like to achieve, maybe even just in the next week. Fantastic. She's being a behavioural psychologist for me. That's perfect. (laughs) Thanks so much, Imogen. Looking forward to hearing from you again for more updates on Climactic. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, 
head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.